10 o'clock. How are we? Good. Crazy people braving the dusting of snow to be here today. Commend you. It's great to see you. Glad you're here. If you have a Bible or a device for the Bible app, go ahead and grab those things. Let's go to James chapter 2 together. James chapter 2. Look, we all have favorites, right? Favorite foods, favorite music, favorite movies, uh, favorite sports teams, favorite vacation spots. I'm sure if I asked you to tell us about all your favorite things in life, you'd have answers. But what if I asked you this? What's your favorite type of person? Like, what color are they? What's their gender? How much money do they make? How do they dress? Where do they live? What kind of car do they drive? Where do they go to work each day? I asked my wife that question this past week, and she said, James, that's a weird question. And I'm sure many of us in the room, we would agree with that. Like, we know there's something off about it, and the thought of answering it probably makes many of us in the room highly uncomfortable. But why? Like, why do we feel that way? Why do we as people fight so hard at times for equality and against discrimination and favoritism? Why do we do that? I want to play devil's advocate for a moment, if I can, and suggest that for many people, feeling that way and fighting for equality is nothing more than hypocrisy. For example, uh, if you're someone who holds to a strict evolutionary worldview, you can't really argue for equality. I mean, evolution teaches natural selection, survival of the fittest, which also teaches that, that you and I as people, some of us, we're going to do better in life because we're more evolved than others. And so if nature's playing favorites, why shouldn't we play favorites? In the same way, if you hold to a strict religious worldview, you can't argue for equality. Right? Religion teaches that good people deserve good things and bad people deserve bad things. We all get what we earn. So some of us, we deserve better because we're just better people. Right? If there's a God out there playing favorites like that, why shouldn't we? I want to suggest today that the only argument for equality that makes any sense is the Christian argument. This argument says that there's one God who created us all in his image, don't miss it, as equals. And that same God put a conscience inside of every one of us so that we would intrinsically know and believe that when it comes to people, we shouldn't play favorites. And that's what James is teaching in our passage for today. So if your Bible's open, James chapter 2, we're going to start reading in verse 1. All right, here we go. My brothers, show no partiality. Another word for partiality, some of your Bibles might use it, is favoritism. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, 
while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So here's the instruction. James says, don't play favorites. Don't play favorites. Don't pass judgment on other people based on external standards. Don't treat different people differently in hopes that you might somehow benefit from doing so. And then James, he points to a specific issue going on in the church at this time to explain what he means. I mean, imagine it with me. Imagine that we're all gathered here for church like we are today, and the place is packed, even more packed than it is right now, and, and it's packed. I think you'd agree. But, but imagine it's so packed, we only had one seat left in the house, and it was the best seat. It's right here in the very front, and two guys, they walk in at the same time. The first guy, he is well-dressed, right? He shows up in his Armani suit, his diamond cufflinks. It is clear he's not from Cartersville, and he's never been to our church before because he's way overdressed, right? But we know just by looking at him, this dude's got money. I mean, he is wealthy. And then the second guy, he walks in, and he's just the opposite. His clothes are tattered, they're torn, they're dirty, they're smelly. We know just by looking at him, this is a poor man. Well, James says in that moment, if you favor the rich guy, like if you say to him, hey, good news, we have one seat left and it's yours. We reserved it just for you, best seat in the house. Let me take you to your seat right now. And then we say to the poor man, uh, bad news, we have no seats left. You're going to have to sit in the back on the floor at my feet. James says if you show that kind of favoritism in that moment, you are guilty of passing judgment on people based on nothing more than external standards. Now, look, I know we may not want to admit this, but I bet many of us in the room do this on a regular basis almost unknowingly, right? We see that person of that other skin color, and we automatically make assumptions. We decide to sit somewhere else when we see how that person is dressed after walking into the restaurant, the cafeteria, the break room. Uh, maybe we meet that, that man, that woman who's got a lot of money, and so we decide we're going to treat them a little differently than we treat other people in hopes that we might partake in their wealth and affluence, right? Maybe if I become friends with them, they'll invite me to dinner at that nice place and foot the bill. Maybe we'll get to go to the vacation house next summer or, or be invited to the next pool party. Look, according to James, here's the first thing that happens when you show that kind of favoritism. Look, he tells us that favoritism distinguishes self. Favoritism distinguishes self. In verse 4, he tells us that when we pass judgment on other people based on external standards, whether it be dress, money, house, car, skin color, gender, age, whatever it is, that we have become like judges. Has anybody ever stood in front of a judge before? You don't need to raise your hand, all right? You know who you are. We just love you. We're just glad you're here, all right? But have you ever stood in front of a judge or at the very least watched like Judge Judy? Don't tell anybody that if you've watched it, but, but if you've ever seen a judge in action, you know what a judge does, right? A judge sits at the head of a courtroom on an elevated platform and passes judgment on people concerning their guilt and innocence. James says, look, when you play favoritism, that's what you're doing. You are elevating yourself over others. You're distinguishing yourself, and you're making judgment calls on people based on nothing more than external standards. Judgment calls, mind you, that you have absolutely no right to make. And in doing so, you're consuming your mind with evil, sinful, ungodly thoughts. Now, there's more. Keep reading. Verse 5. James goes on. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him? 
But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So there's two more things in these verses that James tells us about favoritism. And the first is this. He points out that favoritism denies the gospel. That word gospel that you see on the screens here, it simply means good news. Anytime you see it in the Bible, it's a reference to the good news of Jesus and what he's done for sinful people like us. It's news that tells us that 2,000 years ago, Jesus, he left heaven and he came to this earth as a man. He lived a perfect life, the life none of us have been able to live. And then at the end of his life, he went to a cross. And as we sang earlier, he died the death we deserve in our place for our sins so that we could be loved and accepted by God. And then finally, three days later, he rose from the dead, conquering sin, death, and hell on our behalf so that we could experience new and eternal life in God's kingdom. Now, the gospel also teaches us that God doesn't play favorites. Look, this makes a whole lot of sense when you think about who the Bible describes God to be. This book teaches that the God we're here to worship today, he is a good, gracious, loving father. Now, parents in the room, you get this, but good, gracious, loving parents, they don't play favorites when it comes to their kids, do they? I mean, their kids might be different. They might require different levels of attention, affection, different expressions of love. But children are the same in the eyes of good, gracious moms and dads. It's the same with God. I need you to know, God, he's not sitting up in heaven today thinking to himself, oh, that guy down there, he makes a whole lot of money. He could really help my cause. I think I'll save him, but the poor guy, nah, he's out of luck. That woman, she's well-dressed. She's really attractive. I think I'll adopt her into my family as a loved daughter, but jeans and t-shirt girl can't really do anything for her. Uh, that family, they're the right skin color. They're in the right age bracket. I think I'll love them as my own. Uh, but that other family, not too old, too poor, too white, too black, too brown, can't do anything for them. It's not how it works. God's love and God's salvation, hear me, is unconditional. Through Jesus, our God saves the rich, the poor, the young, the old, male, female, poorly dressed, well dressed. As that kid's song goes that I sang growing up. He loves red, yellow, black, and white. They're all precious in his sight. Look, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you look like, what you have, what you've done. God extends his grace to us through his son, Jesus, and he promises the riches of his kingdom to those who love him. Look, please don't miss what I'm about to say. When you play favorites, you deny those gospel truths. When you show favoritism, you suggest something different about the God you claim to know, love, serve, and follow. He doesn't play favorites. We've got to get our heads and our hearts around this today. We've got to understand when it comes to the grace of God that it's available to all of us because if we don't, then our lives reflect something very different than what, what God calls us to. This is what the, the Christians that James wrote to were doing. I mean, specifically, they were treating poor people as if they were lesser in the eyes of God. This is why in verse 5 that we read a moment ago, uh, James says, Hey, has not God chosen the poor to be rich in faith and to be heirs of his kingdom? Right? He reminded them and he's reminding us that God takes great joy in showing his grace to the poor in this world. And, and look, I want to be really careful here, really clear, because I don't want to contradict what I said a moment ago that, that God doesn't play favorites. I do realize in hearing that it might sound like, hey, if you're poor, God likes you best. It's not the case, all right? There's a wrong way and a right way to think about God's grace in relation to the rich and poor. 
one wrong way to think about it is this. It's called prosperity theology. That the more a person has, the more they're loved by God. That those God loves, he blesses with health, with wealth, with prosperity. And if those things don't belong to you, something's wrong with you and or your faith. Look at me. It's garbage. It's unbiblical. Any pastor that teaches that, you need to put down their book. You need to turn off the TV. Do not listen. They are teaching things that do not line up with the word of God. The other wrong way to think is this. It's called poverty theology. Poverty theology teaches that the less a person has, the more they're loved by God. Teaches that worldly riches are evil, rich people are evil, and if you really love God, you will have as little as possible. The right way to think is according to what the Bible teaches, which is this, that it doesn't really matter what we have or don't have, we're all bad people, right? We're all sinners, and we're all in need of God's grace, and the beautiful news for us today is this, God doesn't play favorites. He extends his grace to the rich. And he joyfully extends his grace to the poor. And all we need to do to receive his offer of grace is come to him in humility. I will say that it's usually easier for poor people to do that. You see, when a person doesn't have much, it's not too hard to convince them that they need much. It's a lot harder to convince that person that has a lot that they need a lot. Are you with me? But regardless of who you are, what you have, once you come to God and you receive his offer of grace, the goal of your life then becomes to be like him, which means that you should treat every person with the same dignity and respect regardless of who they are, what they have, what they look like. The second thing James tells us in the verses we read is this, that favoritism, it dishonors people. Dishonors people. This is crazy, but in James's day, the rich, they were oppressing the poor by actually taking possessions and, and land that poor people owned. What little they had, they took it from them, and then they sold it so that they could become richer. So think about how jacked up this church was. You got rich people walking in, being offered the best seats, while the poor people they're oppressing are being seated in the back of the room or on the floor. These people are dishonoring the honorable name of God by dishonoring people that matter to God, yet they're being honored. Isn't that insane? Look, anytime you play favorites, can I tell you that's what you're guilty of? You are dishonoring the honorable name of God by dishonoring people that matter to him. And I want to make it really practical, okay? Uh, if you were here last Sunday, think back with me to what we learned at the end of James 1, verses 26 and 27. If you weren't here last week, this will be new information, but I'll, I'll get you caught up, okay? In those two verses, we learned about three characteristics that define the lives of people who obey God and do what his word says. And I'll refresh your memory. Here were the characteristics. A bridled tongue or a restrained tongue. So in other words, you watch your mouth, right? Second, care for the oppressed. And third, people who obey God's word, they remain unstained from the world. Think about this with me. Doesn't favoritism completely contradict each of these characteristics? Right, I'll make my point. Think about it. When you play favorites, you're not bridling or restraining your tongue, are you? No, instead you're speaking poorly about people that God created in his image, people that matter to him. And that's dishonoring. Secondly, when you play favorites, it's very unlikely that you'll care for poor and oppressed people. Instead, you'll be that person that looks at poor people and rails on them for not trying harder, wanting more, doing better. That's dishonoring. And then thirdly, when you play favorites, you don't remain unstained from the world. You actually act like the world. Wouldn't you agree? The way of the world is to pass judgment. The way of the world is to show partiality, to create distinctions, to treat different people differently based on who they are, how they look, what they have. Look, that's dishonoring. 
And as followers of Jesus, we are called to a much different way of life. James tells us this in verse 8. Look at it with me. James 2, verse 8. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, and here's the law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says, man, if you're doing that, you're doing well. I love it. In verse 8, James reminds us that the law of God's kingdom, this is why he calls it the royal law, that the law of God's kingdom is a law of love. Isn't that beautiful? It's a law that is first and foremost founded upon God's great love for us. Love that I talked about a moment ago. Love that caused King Jesus to get off of his throne 2,000 years ago. And as Paul said, he, he became poor that, that we through his poverty might become rich. Jesus came here. He humbled himself. He became a servant to us. He gave up his life on our behalf that we could be adopted into God's family, heirs of God's kingdom. You see, it's not until you understand the depths of God's love for you that you can truly live out the law of love the scripture calls you to. And that law is simply this. Don't miss it. It's this easy. You love God, you love people. You love God, you love people. If you're here today and you're new to church and Jesus and you're going, what's this whole Christianity thing about? This book I'm holding in my hand says it's about two things. You love God and you love people. In Deuteronomy 6.5, we're told that we should love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus in the New Testament goes on to call that the greatest command of all the scriptures. We're told in Leviticus 19.18 that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. James quotes that verse here in uh, James 2. Jesus goes on in the New Testament to tell us that that's the second greatest command of all the scriptures. Jesus actually says if we get these two commands right, love God and love people, that we get the rest of the commands right. All the law and prophets hang on these two commands, Jesus says. If you love God and you love people, as James says, you're doing well. So let me ask you, are you doing those things? I mean, think about your life and be honest for a moment. Do you love God more than anything else in life? Is he your greatest treasure? Do you love him more than your money, your job, your stuff, your status, your spouse, your kids? Do you love God with undivided devotion? Is he what matters to you more than anything else in life? And then secondly, do you love your neighbor as yourself? And for those of you who are asking the question, well, James, who's my neighbor? Bro, clarify, uh, there was a religious guy who asked Jesus that question in the book of Luke in chapter 10. And Jesus responds back with a story about a good Samaritan to make this point. Everybody's your neighbor. Doesn't matter who they are. Doesn't matter how different they might be from you. Everybody you come in contact with is your neighbor. So here it is, practical do you love everybody you come in contact with just like you love yourself? James again says if you're doing these things, you're doing really well. You're obeying the law of God's kingdom. You're getting it right. Your life is reflecting what it's supposed to reflect, which means, on the other hand, if you're not doing these things, if you're not loving God with full devotion, if you're not loving your neighbor as yourself, you're following a different law. And I would suggest that you're probably following someone other than Jesus. There's a fourth and final thing that James tells us about favoritism in our passage. Here it is. Favoritism, he tells us, defies God. Favoritism defies God. And I'm going to show you what I mean. All right, verses 9 through 11. Let's read this together. He goes on. He says, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. 
So here's what we just read. You ready? James says, favoritism is sin. When you create distinctions and you show partiality, you are breaking the law of God. And you're not just breaking part of it, you're breaking all of it. Think about it this way. Students in the room, if you went to school tomorrow and your teacher gave you a test with 100 questions and you missed one question and your teacher gave you a zero, what would you think? Parents in the room, what, what would you think? You'd be losing your mind. Well, how dare you do that to my kid? We should be having 99. Look, I want you to understand, even though that sounds unfair, that's the way God's law works. James tells us if you get one thing wrong, you get the whole thing wrong. And why? Well, because God's law is a reflection of his own character. And even if we get one thing wrong, it means that we are still defying him and we are challenging his character directly. Your sin, please hear me, your sin of favoritism is more serious than you think it is. We have to get our heads and our hearts around this today because if we're not careful, our knee-jerk reaction to a message like this could be, uh, yeah, I play favorites, but at least I haven't killed anybody. I mean, I know I, I show favoritism and partiality at times, but at least I haven't committed adultery. Have you ever considered why we do that? <laughs> like why we compare our sin to other people's sin? We do it to make ourselves feel better, right? At least I'm not as bad as that guy. At least I'm not as bad as that woman. Can I tell you the danger of doing this? Look, when you compare sin, you categorize sin, and then eventually you start to normalize sin. Let me just say it again. When you compare sin, you categorize sin, and eventually you start to normalize sin. In other words, you convince yourself, you know what, my sin is not as serious as other people's sin. Their sin is higher on the chart than mine, and so God, he's going to give me a pass for my sin because it's, it's not really as bad as what they're doing. Do you hear how insane that is? James is teaching this. No, you, your sin is just as bad. It's a big deal. In God's eyes, sin is sin is sin is sin. And it doesn't matter if you've killed somebody, if you've committed adultery, or if you're playing favorites, your sin is a big deal. You're just as guilty as the murderer, and you're just as guilty as the adulterer if you're a person who shows partiality. That's what James is teaching us here. Here's what you can do. You can't leave today still comparing, still categorizing, and still normalizing. Instead, what you need to do is come to God and confess. You need to confess your racism, your sexism, your classism, your ageism, whatever ism is defining your life, you confess it. And you repent of it, and you ask God to forgive you of your defiance toward him, and you ask him to change your heart toward people. Again, hear me, your sin is more serious than you think it is. So what in the world do we do with all this? I mean, if it's true that our favoritism distinguishes self, uh, denies the gospel, dishonors people, defies God, how in the world should we respond? Well, James, he does us a great favor, and he answers that question in the last two verses of this section, verses 12 and 13. Check it out. He says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who shall no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment so here's what he tells us he says guys don't forget judgment's coming one day you're all going to stand before god that's people created by him and you're going to answer for the way you lived your life and he also tells us on that day god is going to judge those who have failed to show mercy to others without mercy and so the practical instruction is this hey uh speak and act like you know that day's coming 
speak and act like you actually believe it's going to happen for you. It's almost like he's preaching last week's message. Don't just hear the word, do the word. Don't just listen to all this talk on favoritism and partiality. You should actually love your neighbor as yourself because one day you're going to have to answer to God for whether or not you actually did it. Now, please hear me. I need you to understand what James is not saying here. This is critical, all right? Please don't zone out on me now. James is not saying here that if we want to be safe on the day of judgment, if we want to receive mercy from God, that we pull that off by showing mercy to others. Are you with me? He's not saying, guys, if you want God's mercy, you have to earn it. And the way that you earn it is by being merciful. If you'll do the word, if you'll show others mercy, if you'll speak and act and live like you know you're supposed to speak, act, and live, well, on the day of judgment, then God will be merciful to you. Look, it's impossible for us to earn the mercy of God, right? You with me? This is why Jesus came. God in his mercy sent his son into the world to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And if we want mercy from God, we understand it's a gift and we receive it. We don't earn it, we simply receive it. Let me show you what James is teaching. If you're taking notes, you can write it down. He's teaching this, that those who receive mercy extend mercy. Those who receive mercy extend mercy. So in other words, if a person has truly received mercy from God, that mercy will overflow from their lives to others. You see, it's our mercy shown to other people that proves we've received mercy from God. Mercy that will ultimately allow us to stand before him on the day of judgment as loved, blameless people. You see, if you know Jesus today, that day of judgment, it's not a day on which you will be judged for your damnation or salvation. You will be judged by God for eternal reward. And part of your eternal reward will be based upon whether or not you extended the mercy to others that God extended to you. Now, here's the implication of that truth. The implication is, if you're not showing mercy, there's a chance you haven't received it. It's hard, right? Hard pill to swallow, hard for some of us to hear. But who better to make such a bold claim than James? And, and not this James, by the way, the James of the Bible. I mean, let's not forget, he was Jesus' little brother. He had a front row seat to Jesus' life and Jesus' teachings. You know, as I read this passage over and over again this past week, I just started to think, like, I wonder how many occasions, you know, James sat there and listened as his brother taught about mercy. The mercy that we as his followers should extend and show. I wondered how many times James like rolled up on a scene where older brother was loving the poor, healing the sick, serving the widow, touching the leper, restoring the outcast. I mean, I have to think and we have to believe that, that James saw and heard a lot of that go down, right? And I just wonder if, if as he was writing the words we read today, if he was just singing to himself, my brother didn't play favorites. My brother didn't, didn't treat people differently based on who they were, what they looked like, what they had. He treated everybody the same. He showed dignity. He showed respect. He was a guy who gave away mercy to anybody who needed it and anybody who asked. Look, here's the final thought. If we claim to know, love, and follow Jesus, according to James, we should act like Jesus. And acting like Jesus means that we give away the mercy we've received from him to other people. So, are you doing that? Are you showing mercy or are you showing partiality? Are you loving your neighbor as yourself, or are you playing favorites? Are you living according to the law of God's kingdom, 
or are you living according to your own law, defying God, and treating people based on your own preferences? Now, let me ask you this final question. What does that say about the mercy you receive and the person you're following? I just want to ask us all over the room if we would just bow our heads and close our eyes. And as we're getting settled in, I would just invite you, man, stop worrying about anybody else or anything else going on in the room right now. I just want to invite you to get alone in your seat with your thoughts and with God. And I want to invite you right now in this moment in prayer just to ask God, God, prepare my heart. God, show me who I am. Show me what I'm doing. Am I extending mercy or am I withholding it? Am I loving my neighbor or am I playing favorites? Ask God to reveal those broken parts of who you are, those parts of you that that almost seem embedded in you, that you don't even really realize are there, but they're there, and they're a direct challenge to the character of God, and they're a direct challenge to who God is trying to transform you to be. Here's what I'd hate, and here's one of my greatest fears today. I would hate if there was somebody in this room believing that they were a Christian, a follower of Jesus, when they really weren't. I would hate it if you came today and you think that you're a Christian because you come to church and you try to be a good person and you try to follow all the right rules. That's not what makes you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is simple. You've received the mercy of God made available to you through Jesus Christ. You've put your faith and trust in Him. You've confessed your sins. You've come to God and you've asked Him to do something in your life that only He can do. You can't save yourself. Only He can do that. And so I I think there might be some of us in the room today who, because if we've been examined by the Word of God, would have to admit today, I don't think I've received mercy. Nothing in my life has changed. Nothing is different. I don't love God with full devotion. I don't love my neighbor as I love myself. I'm the same old person I've always been. I've just come to church. I'm just trying to follow a few more rules. Look, if that's you, if that's you, I want you to know God loves you and he wants to give you mercy today. He wants to give you mercy today. If you need to receive that mercy, I want to help you do it right now in this moment. So in your seat. If you need the mercy of God, if you need a relationship with Jesus, just say something like this in prayer to him. Say, God, I need mercy. I know I'm a sinful person. I know I am in need of of what only you can offer. God, I believe that Jesus died for my sins, that he rose from the dead so that I could be made a new person, so that I could be adopted into your family, experience your kingdom. And God, I'm asking you, God, to to change me, to forgive me, to save me, to make me a love son, to make me a love daughter. God, I say yes to Jesus today. Look, if you just prayed with me in a moment, I just want to ask you to take a simple step, all right? Our our prayer team's going to be up front. I'm going to be up front. If you just prayed with me, we don't want to put you on the spot or, or make this weird, but we do want to celebrate with you what God's just done in your life. And we want to give you a gift. It's from us to you, free. It's a gift that's going to help you get started in your new relationship with Jesus. So if you just prayed with me in a moment when we stand to sing, I want to ask you, don't just stand in your seat, but but get out of your seat and come and tell one of us that are going to be here, hey, I just said yes to Jesus. That's all you need to say. 
And we want to pray with you, and we want to give you the gift that's going to help you get started in your relationship with him. Look, for the rest of us, for those who know Jesus, I want to challenge us and invite us to spend the next few moments just asking God to make us more and more and more like his son. Let's ask God not to let today go to waste in our lives, but to use this moment to change us, to transform us, to help us love him more, to help us love our neighbors more, that he might rid us of favoritism, discrimination, that he would help us to be true reflections of his kingdom. God, my prayer is in the next few moments that you would just let your spirit move in power in this place, change us, speak to us, give people courage, God, to take steps they need to take. And God, we trust you for that. We love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. We pray this in Jesus' name.